From KCRW, I'm Evan Kleiman, and you're listening to Good Food. It's February 29th, leap year. Later in the show, we'll hear about how to catch and cook frogs because, well, how else do you celebrate leap day? A lot of people think they sound gross, but I think they're a pretty luxurious meat, and it makes it worth it because when you go out there, it's generally hot, and you're in the marsh, There's alligators floating around. The bugs are outrageous. It's like the bugs are intentionally trying to get inside of you. But let's be real. Most of us are not out in a swamp hunting our own frogs. If you eat meat in 2020, it's likely that you are grappling with some pretty big issues. First is production capacity, which can't possibly service what the demand will be by 2050. It's nearly maxed out now. Then there are the ecological issues of greenhouse gases and fouling of water sources, just to name two. And of course, the animal welfare issues. And yet, test tube meat just seems, well, icky. Writer-historian Ben Wergaft turns his attention to the social, political, and philosophical issues surrounding cultured meat in his book, Meat Planet. It's such a pleasure to have you. I mean, this book that you've written, Meat Planet, is so dense with ideas to just think about and ponder. It's so complicated, and it's bizarre how it all is triggered by this idea of producing meat from a Petri dish. Describe what watching the reveal of the first Petri dish hamburger was like. Well, I should say that for starters, I was really sleepy. I was living in Los Angeles, and the um, reveal was in London, and I got up early in the morning to watch it via an internet feed. And I felt a little bit like I was watching the future emerge through a scanner darkly. I was sort of seeing it emerge as I think thousands of other people around the world were. And it was like an early 21st century version of one of the world's fairs of the 19th century where things that are said to be the house of tomorrow, the food of tomorrow, the everything of tomorrow were unveiled. And Mark Post, the Dutch scientist whose lab created the first in vitro cell-based burger, unveiled it and uh, panel of tasters ate it and talked about its sensory properties. And it's very, very weird to think about not the future of a flying car or a space shuttle or a, a, a driverless car or something that we can see, but to, to, to witness the future of food emerging when we can't eat it, when we can't smell it, when we can't taste test it as as you did the Impossible Burger on an episode of, of Good Food. You talk about seeing this introduction through the lens of, quote, the emergence metaphor. Could you explain? The emergence metaphor is just my effort to grapple with what it's like for something to not be here yet. And I should start by, by just sharing uh, with our, our audience the fact that laboratory-grown meat, sometimes called cultured meat, sometimes called clean or cultivated meat, doesn't exist as of this conversation as a consumer product. Um, it may. It may not. My book is about the quest to create it and the possibility of it, but it is unlike 
the various famous plant-based meats that I think we've all heard a lot about in that it's still in its test phases. It exists, but in such small quantities that we probably couldn't fill the two recording booths we're sitting in <laughs> um, with what's been made so far. And and in all of these technological interventions, there is always an externality or, quote, unintended consequence. And it's very hard to grasp what those externalities may be with this because of its philosophical messiness. If I, if I can try to speak to that a little bit, um, the nonprofit organization, a group whose work I really love called um, New Harvest, once set up a number of, they're called tea flasks, these plastic trays used to grow cells um, in media. They took the number of them that Mark Post's team had taken to make their, the, their two or three burger patties, and they set them up on a table at a conference as a kind of object lesson. And it was a mountain of plastic. It looked like an architect's model of a city of the future, all in plastic. And that's one way to think about the externalities that you mentioned, that um, there are all kinds of costs that the simple images of the future don't show us. So if you were to take, uh, say, a plant-based burger, there's still plants to grow and things to process and things to extrude. And as a result, all kinds of um, environmental footprints to that burger, they may not be as great as those of a conventional beef patty. Certainly, the releases from the companies suggest that they're not. But when we're talking about the nexus of food and tech, there are always questions about what's trustworthy and how transparent companies can be given that one of the things they usually need to do is to build and protect intellectual property, which means that there are lots of things I, I wish I could tell you about the near future of lab-grown meat that I just can't because of the necessary black boxing. So you, you write that the modern human condition is characterized by an inherent disharmony between our biology and our technology. I, I just love this sentence so much. So could you speak a bit to that and also where capital markets figure into this disharmony? Because it seems that a lot of these these new marvelous worlds of food that are being explored happen because there's all this capital that needs to find a home. Well, um, as I was wandering through this world, which which the people in it call a space. They call it the food space. And I kept wondering if astronauts refer to space as the space space. Um, I felt like people were trying to create internal frontiers. So you go to the frontier and you find resources there, maybe oil, maybe other precious minerals. And you, you take those and you, you extract them. And the frontier provides you a place to invest capital in pursuit of more. It's It's part of a growth picture of what capitalism does, how capitalism works. And that sentence that you picked out about how uh, our technologies might not be in harmony with our, our bodies, our biology, it's an interesting place to go because it's actually something that this biological anthropologist Richard Rankham said and that I, I, I took as data. It wasn't sort of a thing I was trying to endorse myself, but observing him say, well, he thinks that we're sort of 
we have these prehistoric mines and we have nukes, and that's a dangerous combination. <laughs> and I, I found myself thinking, well, he's in a certain way, he's right. In a certain way, many of our technologies and many of our ways of using technology don't have a ton to do with actual biological need. And there was a spectacular illustration of what you're describing at one conference that I went to in which a consulting firm had gathered what they would call, and the pun is intentional, stakeholders from all areas of what they would call the protein space. So people from big food companies uh, from around the world and brought 50 of these people together into a room um, with a few oddball people like me. And they said, well, we're going to have incredible protein shortfalls by 2040. We're going to have 50% more uh, aspirational meat consumption. And we're going to have, because of climate change, way less farmland. And we already use 75% of our available farmland for animal agriculture. And a nutritionist stood up. And the nutritionist, who I think taught up at Columbia, raised her hand and said, well, did you consult a nutritionist about this? Because we don't think there's going to be this tremendous protein shortfall that will require the development of new products. And I don't know what community of nutritionists she was claiming to speak for, but I thought that that, that discrepancy between what she thought our needs would be, what this world of, of food experts thinks our needs might be, and what these companies hope our needs will be, because it gives them a place to develop products and, and like you said, to, to park capital. One thing that, that um, I, I thought was really interesting was this idea that you posed about whose culture is being recultured, that this work seems to be the province of the white Anglo-European male. Yeah, so this is an old history in people thinking about the future of food. I, I always want to give a shout out to Warren Belasco and his book, Meals to Come, A History of the Future of Food, which is a spectacular book that I think everybody who's thinking about the topic should look at. And it, it's partly the history of white guys planning the diet for a small planet for other people. <laughs> um, and it goes back to the 1798 publication of Malthus's essay on the principle of population, which is the original bummer, the original news that uh, agricultural productivity tends to fall short of population growth. And Malthusians go back to this and they use it as a reason to limit population, as a reason to um, plan for grim futures of food shortfalls. And cornucopians, people who believe in a future of abundance, um, tend to argue against them and say, well, look, we can improve agricultural productivity in all these ways and we've tended to. There's a history of this. And people have these intense ideological arguments that are often held within places like think tanks and governments and not necessarily with any kind of conversation with the broader world that they're trying to plan the feeding or starvation of. And Meat Planet tries to skewer that, <laughs> skewer that a little bit and um, uh, ask what kinds of conversations the world could have about what diet might be like without the dominance of that kind of expert culture. Thank you so much, Ben. Thank you so much. 
That's writer and historian Ben Wergaft. He spent five years researching the social and political issues surrounding cultured meat for his book, Meat Planet. Ready for some vegetables? We're going plant-based with Bryant Terry next. On the newest episode of Nocturne, KCRW's podcast about the night, rancher Sally Gale was driving home in the rain when she noticed a parade of newts risking their lives to cross a small country road and reach the lake on the other side. She knew then that their survival was up to her. If you touch something, you have a connection, and you don't want that beautiful little creature to be run over by some stupid car or truck. Hear the story on Nocturne, wherever you listen to podcasts. We're back on KCRW's Good Food. I'm Evan Kleiman. Bright Terry says that his work is driven by history and memory. The history of people of African descent and the memories of being raised in a family where both men and women cooked and built community around the table. So let's talk about how you came up in the world and and the role that food played. Um, You were raised in Memphis, Tennessee. Hometown. And um, talk to me about memories you have that really influence your approach to cooking, because it's not just that you're cooking plant-based. You have a very interesting and eclectic way of, you say, remixing Mm -hmm. food. Yeah. And in this particular book, um, the relationship you have with your wife and obviously the relationship the two of you have with your children Mm -hmm. really has stepped out into the front. Yes. So there's this Mm Afro-Asian thing happening. Mm -hmm. Well, I think it's important to start by kind of reminding people or recognizing that kitchen can be very gendered spaces. You know, we know in the home, they're often kind of like framed as the women's space. And then in the professional world, we know that kitchens uh, tend to be very um, male-dominated, sometimes very hyper-masculine, sometimes violent spaces. And so it was really important for me as a young person to see my paternal grandfather cooking all the time. And part of the reason was because before I was born, my maternal grandmother had a massive stroke. And so I never saw her outside of a wheelchair. And, you know, my parents and uncles and aunts talk about how vibrant and lively she was before that. But all her needs had to be taken care of uh, by my grandfather. And of course, you know, guys like the barbecue and grill and, and, and things like that. But seeing my grandfather being so committed to teaching himself how to cook, you know, he's like, I remember him talking about, I'm going to teach myself how to bake because I want to do more baked goods. And, and just really, you know, committing to cooking and nurturing and feeding not only his wife, but all the grandkids and all of his children. And I think that gave me permission you know, being in the South and being a boy where you might, you know, you might get into it if you're talking about making some cupcakes or something. And so, you know, my, my granddad was a manly man. You know, he he hunted, he fished, and he'd kick your butt. But he also was very, you know, kind, loving, and gentle. And he expressed a lot of that through food. And I think that has definitely influenced the way that I think about, you know, my role as a chef and nurturing people. You have two daughters. Mm-hmm. How old are they now? They are five and eight. So speak to a little bit about how you share this multicultural identity piece Mm -hmm. with them through food. Yeah. Well, I always talk about the way in which I see food as a way to obviously nourish and care for people. But, you know, there are lots of lessons to learn through food. Um, You know, I talk about, you know, food being a vehicle for trans 
um, furring history, memory, memories. And my wife, she has a similar approach. And so, you know, I obviously am focusing a lot on the foods of the African diaspora and because my wife is Chinese American. I mean, it's not that she's just Chinese American. It's that she's really adept and awesome at making a range of different Asian cuisines. So she's pretty adept at, you know, Chinese, Japanese, Vietnamese, Thai. So, you know, the the, the flavor profiles, the ingredients, the um, dishes that we make in our house, they're exploring all these range of dishes throughout Asia, throughout the African diaspora. And it, it, it's really beautiful just seeing our girls, you know, just like feel so much ownership over these foods. They're so lucky. <laughs> They're so lucky. Um, let's talk about the food itself for a minute now. Yes. So we have to talk about hot chicken because it's everywhere <laughs> here in L.A. But you remix it with cauliflower. Yeah. So tell us what you do. Do you just like use it as a steak? I do. You know what? I almost feel embarrassed that I did cauliflower steaks in this book. I feel like it's so passe at this point. Oh, I no. How could something that delicious be passe? It might not be new, but they're still delicious. Yeah, they are. And, you know, I, I really like that recipe, I have to say. And um, it was inspired by a breaded cauliflower recipe that my friend Samin Nosrat had um, created for the New York Times magazine. And it's just a simple kind of like um, dredging it and then frying it. And, you know, I was like, I'm not going to get all fancy. We're not using some rustic um, country bread. We're just going to get some plain wheat bread for this. And I think just that combination of like the bread is kind of like the the simple foil to that super flavorful cauliflower that's drenched in this homemade hot sauce. It is satisfying. So I I don't typically do kind of like the vegan analogs for the meat uh, recipes that people are familiar with, but that was one that I, I just wanted to do kind of to give a shout out to my home state of Tennessee. So let's talk about something that's lesser known. Um, what is Fonio? Am I pronouncing it right? And how are you using it? Yeah, so I, I'll say that Fonio is a recently, you know, in terms of my understanding or just knowledge of it existing, but even understanding how it's been used historically and now. And, and it comes from Pierre Tiem, who is a Senegalese chef um, based in New York, and he's between New York and Dakar. And so he has a company where he's really trying to revitalize this ancient um, grain that is seen throughout Senegal, certainly, but I think different parts of West Africa. And so... Um, you know, I was just playing and experimenting with it. And I mean, look, I will eat it just in the similar way that one might just boil some quinoa and just have it as kind of like the grain-based side in a larger meal. But in the book, I have these fonio and kale balls in which, you know, it's kind of like a croquette. So I um, blend the, you know, cook the fonio and then blend it with kale and some aromatics and then shape them into balls and bake them. And uh, it's really good. It's just, you know, I, I think those are the type of things that when I'm thinking about foods that, you know, would appeal to kids and you kind of like this whole idea of like sneaking in vegetables. I mean, kids just love fritters and balls and things like that. And, you know, I think we need to be celebrating the African superfoods. I think it's great that we've done things like revive quinoa, although there are a lot of politics around the negative impact that that's had on the actual people living in Peru. And But point is, I... You know, when I think about the way in which we tout all these different superfoods, and I'm like, you know what? Collard greens, that's Black people's superfood. Like, Fonio, that's the superfood of West Africa. And so um, I have some things in the work, but I want to continue to figure out creative ways of elevating the, the superfoods of the African diaspora, and that's one of them. Exciting. 
So you have this really interesting program from mothers to mothers, where you you work with restaurants to create postpartum recipes for nursing mothers. Mm-hmm. How do vegetables play a part in those menus? First of all, what an interesting thing to do. <laughs> yeah, well, that program has been one of the, the most exciting things that I've been working on. Uh, I've been an advisor for this Mothers to Mothers project, and it was started as a class um, at UC Berkeley where students were thinking about different public health issues and this real concern that I think more people are starting to understand that we need to put energy and resources in addressing of um, maternal mortality and the, the people who are most impacted by that are Black women and Native women. You know, part of it is that there is not an infrastructure in the United States to care for mothers in that fourth trimester in, in a similar way that it is in other traditional cultures, right? So there are certain foods, there are certain ways in which women are supposed to be cared for and nurtured. And so what we wanted to do was give people the opportunity to click into whatever delivery service you might be using and then there's a menu for postpartum recipes. And you know that there's these 40 restaurants in your city where you can go and you can get a recipe that either, you know, some of the restaurants that we work with, they've created an original recipe that uses whatever criteria of like the kind of nutrient density that new mothers might need. But then a lot of them, they're just naturally... You know, it's nothing that needs to be changed. Like one of the restaurants, we partner with a Mexican restaurant, and they do this pozole with a 24-hour chicken broth base. And in a lot of traditional Latin American cultures, these are the type of, like, foods where you take, you know, some type of poultry and you just boil it down and you get all the cartilage and those nutrients, and then women will sip on the broth. And so, you know, some of it just is kind of like organically would fit in the category of a really healthful and delicious postpartum recipe. And, you know, for us, we're hoping that this will be a model that other cities can use where restaurants can see their see the role that they can play in nurturing mothers. You know, the, the biggest thing that we, we found is that in other c- cultures, it's not just the woman taking care of herself. It's not just the family. It's the wider community who's uplifting and nurturing and ensuring that not only the mother, but the child is successful and healthy. And I think that we should, you know, think about creative ways of bringing that ethos back where it's the communities that are caring for mothers and caring for children in those um, most crucial years. Well, Brian, as always, it's always lovely to touch base with you and talk to you. So many interesting ideas in what you're doing. Thank you for coming. Thank you for having me. That's Oakland-based chef Bryant Terry. He's the chef in residence at the Museum of the African Diaspora in San Francisco. His latest cookbook is Vegetable Kingdom. Sloppy Joe's pizza and chicken nuggets are staples doled out by America's lunch ladies as the cooking in our nation's school cafeteria programs has devolved to unbox and reheat. Big Food has a monopoly on our school lunch and the 32 million children participating in the program. Professor Jennifer Gaddis examines how labor is the missing ingredient to healthier eating by the student body. Hi. Hi, Evan. Thanks so much for having me on your show. Oh, it's a pleasure. The labor piece that you have researched in your work is fascinating. So let's talk about the lunch ladies, who they are, how much, who they were. There aren't that many anymore, are there? And and well, uh, there's about four hundred twenty thousand of them across the country. So it's not a tiny number. 
Um, it's but big the, number. the type of work that they're doing and the hours that they work might be um, a little different than it once was, for sure. <laughs> so let's talk about that. Let's talk about who they are, what they're earning, what kind of work um, they're doing. Sure. Um, so as I mentioned, there's about 420,000 um, cafeteria workers across the country, or at least that's the number the last time there was a nationwide study done um, in 2008. And the majority of those workers are actually in part-time positions. So one of the things um, that you mentioned earlier is that a lot of schools do still rely, um, even though kind of the quality of school food has gotten better in the last decade, um, there's a lot of schools that still rely on heat and serve foods, so frozen foods that they're unboxing and baking. So what that really means is that the schools have outsourced the work of cooking to, you know, different uh, places. So it could be a district-wide central kitchen or it could be like a big food manufacturing facility. And so what that ends up meaning for the workers is that there's a lot of um, part-time hours, particularly in the middle of the day when you need more workers to actually just be doing the physical labor of serving the food and like working the cashier station. So a big thing for school food service workers is that even if they have um, a pretty good union contract and their hourly wage is high, um, because of the nature of the work and the fact that so much of the work of cooking has been outsourced in one way or another, um, workers tend to really struggle to get hours. So they not only have much, much more limited employment during the summertime, but on a daily basis, um, it's not uncommon for you to find um, a fair number of workers in these like three to five hour positions. And one thing that that can mean for workers is that um, depending upon the district, they might have to work four hours or it might be six hours in order to qualify for benefits. Um, so whatever the threshold happens to be in a local school district, you'll oftentimes find a lot of workers who are about 15 minutes under the minimum in order to qualify for benefits. So one of the things that that can do is it can cause a lot of turnover, particularly in the shortest hour positions. And um, that's not only bad for um, really maintaining the quality of the program over time, but it can also be really detrimental to the kids and to kind of the public health mission of using public schools as a place to really introduce kids to new and healthy foods. A lot of the literature like from public health shows that it's quite important, um, particularly for young kids, to have a positive relationship with the people who are feeding them. If they're going to be you know, asked to try new foods, it, it goes over a lot better if they trust and like the person that is um, kind of offering them those new things. So when there's a really high level of turnover in those three to five hour positions, that means that the person who's interacting with you on the serv serving line or the person who you know, is working at the cashier station, that person might be changing pretty frequently because there's a lot of people you know, even if they like the work, can't afford to stay in the job. Is there a correlation between wages and gender in school cafeterias? Overall, the workforce is about 90, a little over 90 percent um, women. And you'll certainly find more men and college-educated women who are um, the food service director, so the kind of the person who's in charge of the whole program, um, or in managerial positions. You also tend to find more men in high school kitchens, um, in part because um, I would say that they tend to do a little bit more from scratch cooking um, for high schools and hours can be a little bit longer. But certainly it's a profession that's very, very highly feminized. And I think because of this relationship between gender and food work and the way in which we value um, the work of caring for others in society, the work of um, 
preparing food and feeding kids in school kitchens and cafeterias has always been really economically devalued. Um, so that's been kind of true for well over a century. And um, unlike some other professions right now um, that are very woman-dominated, so for instance, um, home health care workers and domestic workers that are really doing a lot of kind of more visible organizing. Um, I think cafeteria workers um, have traditionally had a little bit harder of a time organizing as a collective unit. And um, oftentimes, if they are part of a union, they tend to be part of a bigger bargaining unit that either includes instructional staff or at least in includes like other people who would be considered like support staff for the school. And through my conversations with a lot of workers, um, who are part of unions that have this larger bargaining unit, they oftentimes feel like some of their concerns um, are less heard, like they're kind of at the bottom of the school hierarchy. Um, so I think that there's a lot of um, struggles that cafeteria workers have that need to be made more visible, um, not only because they deserve, I think, to make you know, a living doing the work that they're doing, caring for others, but also because the quality of their jobs really impacts the quality of the National School Lunch Program and what it can really do for the nation's kids and families. So in all this eight years of visiting and researching school kitchens and cafeterias, did you have any preconceived no notions that were kind of blown away in your findings? Um, I don't know that I had any preconceived notions. It's more so that I was constantly finding new things. And that's one of the things that I think makes um, school food reform really challenging is that, you know, this is a federal program, but there's a lot of local context to take into account. So, you know, just when you kind of think you're, you're wrapping your head around things are something new can surprise you in terms of, you know, what a community might be doing with their existing infrastructure or challenges that they might be facing or like new partnerships that they might be creating with um, local farmers or food companies. So I think that more than anything, um, I just kept on finding um, new things and being really impressed with um, just really the work that people in school kitchens and cafeterias were doing with very limited resources. And I think um, I certainly encountered places where you know, there had been real efforts to make change, and um, then people kind of became demoralized when, you know, participation didn't increase or if they had a change in funding. So it just showed me how important it is, um, even when um, school lunch programs maybe don't appear to be the best, to make sure that they still have public support because there's really no way to improve them when um, we give up on the program. So what I've been kind of talking with people about is this idea of, well, you know, maybe it doesn't have to be like a, a totally like either or situation. Maybe there's like a few times per month or maybe once a week um, that you feel comfortable like having your kids participate in the school lunch program and you feel like you can afford to do that. Great. So do that and then maybe take, um, you know, the 10, 15 minutes that you've saved um, from not packing lunches and devote that to you know, having a conversation or in some way moving forward um, with this idea of really working together to build more of an advocacy base for local and national level change. It's so interesting. Thank you so much, Jennifer. You're welcome. That's Jennifer Gaddis. She's an assistant professor in the Department of Civil Society and Community Studies at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. Her new book is The Labor of Lunch. 
After the break, we navigate teaching our children to make the right choices among the onslaught of bad ones. Stay close. Welcome back to Good Food on KCRW. I'm Evan Kleiman. We are besieged on all sides by marketing convincing us to consume food with little nutritional value that's actually designed to make us want more. But the minefields we adults have to pick through to feed ourselves is nothing compared to the barrage leveled at children. Bettina Elias Siegel is here to speak to the challenge of feeding children in a highly processed world. Hi, Bettina. Hi, how are you? I'm great. You had an epiphany when a nutritionist presenter of School Lunch 101 told your group that all kids got animal crackers for breakfast to fulfill the requirement for iron in their diets. (laughs) Yes, that was a really weird moment and kind of a wake-up call for me. (laughs) I mean, it must have blown your mind. It shows how people with the best of intentions can sometimes have such narrow focus Absolutely. Now, I should be clear, this was in 2010, and the way school food uh, menus are planned is different now and improved in that regard. But yes, it was such a narrow kind of, you know, Michael Pollan would use the word nutritionism kind of thinking that, you know, we need to give kids a certain amount of iron every week, so let's rely on the enriched, fortified white flour in animal crackers. You know, it was just a very, as I said, just kind of eye-opening moment for me. And it sort of changed your life. It really did. I, I went home from that meeting um, and I, I was just kind of baffled and it, it you know, it piqued my interest. I read a book about the National School Lunch Program and at that time I was also um, doing some freelance writing and it just kind of came together for me that I, I wanted to start a blog called The Lunch Tray where I could talk about all these things I was learning about school food and then just more generally about the challenges I was facing as a parent of an 8 and 10 year old at that time, um, you know, just trying to raise healthy kids and, and finding it much harder than I ever expected. So the the name of your book is Kid Food. What is Kid Food to you and according to your readers? I understand you kind of asked people what Kid Food is. Yes. I mean, that was one of the challenges when I sat down to write this book, Kid Food. You know, what do we mean by that? And I think parents kind of know it when they see it, but I certainly wanted to try to be more precise. And so I did take a survey of all my blog followers and social media followers And I think about 350 people responded, mostly parents. And I just said, what does kid food mean to you? And and based on that kind of um, all the data that came in, I think what we could say is it's it's certainly all those foods that we see on restaurant children's menus like chicken nuggets and pizza and tater tots. But of course, some of those foods are, are just as frequently consumed by adults like pizza. I think more broadly, what we're really talking about is the way the processed food industry can really market almost anything to us as quote unquote kid food. You know, they really benefit from market segmentation. You know, why sell a family one yogurt if you can divide it into adult yogurt and kids yogurt? So if you really look at how they tell us something is a kid food, on the kid side of the equation, it always almost almost always has this element of fun to it. You know, fun shapes, cartoon characters, interesting, you know, never seen in nature colors, you know, things like that. So they give kil- children the sense of like excitement and fun. And then on the parent side, the the research shows that when a product is being marketed as for children, companies tend to be particularly aggressive with health and nutrition claims to kind of give parents permission to buy those products. So, you know, contains whole grain or, you know, all natural, things like that. And so those two um, kind of strategies together are, are, are what tell us something, you know, is a kid food. 
What about the actual way it's consumed, the way it feels in the mouth and how easily it's consumed? Yes. So so what we think of as kid food tends to be the stuff that, as one expert in my book says, kids can gum, squish, or swallow, you know, very easily eaten, usually eaten without utensils. And often, you know, of course, and this is really the crux of it, very hyper palatable, you know, nothing to throw the palate off, just just delicious, typically sort of on the bland side kinds of foods. And again, the problem here is what our country considers kid food at the moment tends to be among the least healthy foods that kids could be eating. It used to be the cereal aisle that was the worst. Now... That's right. But now, you know, as we were talking about with with sort of growing market segmentation, the processed food industry, there really is no product they won't look at as a potential kid food. You know, like I think frozen dinners is a great example. You know, when I was growing up, there were TV dinners, but not specifically marketed to children. And now there are, Um, you know, really anything can become kid food in, in the hands of the industry. We all know how intense television ads are that are aimed at children. With so many of us streaming now, is it better? You know, someone else asked me that question. And and, and right, you'd think now we can cut out commercials, so what's the big deal? But the problem is, you know, the industry has moved very seamlessly into all of these new digital technologies to reach children. And in some ways, that's even more powerful because kids tend to spend more time interacting with those kinds of forms of marketing. It might be an advert game, you know, where they're playing 10, you know, 10 minutes with the Lucky Charms leprechaun. That's a lot more advertising exposure than the 30-second commercial ever was. Kids are being tweeted, you know, it's in Snapchat, it's in Instagram. It's, you know, ads are everywhere. Marketing is everywhere now for them through their digital media as well. You know, I spend a fair amount of time in other countries, particularly in Europe, and there really isn't a separation of what children eat and what adults eat. They just eat less. Who got the brilliant idea for the idea of a children's menu? Well, so it's really interesting. I think, um, you know, I think this notion of like a special kind of diet for children really started in the Victorian age that suddenly children weren't seen so much as little adults and they were thought to have these special dietary needs. They were thought to need especially bland food and, you know, lots of dairy. And what I learned in my research is that – the children's menu in America really took hold after Prohibition when restaurants were starting to try to appeal to families because they were they were hurting for business. And mothers at that time were starting to learn from the new field of nutrition science that children needed this sort of special diet and, you know, suitable food for them. And so restaurants started offering these children's menus. But at the time when they were introduced, they were very healthy for children. And now we've done this 180. And even at restaurants where parents can get a salad or a kind of simple sandwich, typically the kids are still offered only the least healthy foods like pizza and chicken nuggets. So we've really had this reversal of the of the purpose of the children's menu. Um, let's talk for a minute about funding of, of school lunch, how it's funded and, and how that just makes things so much more difficult. We seem in this country to have an antipathy of allowing the government to truly regulate and really fund healthy school lunches. And yet there's this inequity of relying on private funders. Exactly. So right now, we are our federal government is not reimbursing schools for school meals at, at the rate that would be required if we really wanted schools to be able to scratch cook from healthy whole ingredients. And I think most parents really would like that. But we are definitely not reimbursing schools at the rate that could accommodate scratch cooking everywhere. Schools don't have the infrastructure. They can't afford the labor. 
So it pushes schools into the direction of heat and eat highly processed foods. So even though they are th- those foods are meeting healthier standards, they're still typically not kind of the whole fresh food we'd like to see. And then paradoxically, the government ends up paying for worse health outcomes. Right. Now, again, I do want to make clear, we have had these very significant improvements in school food nutrition standards. And those, you know, calculations have been done that those changes alone will really save us in healthcare costs and reduce childhood obesity. So I don't mean to undercut the importance of those changes. But unfortunately, a lot of those nutrients are still reaching children in the form of highly processed food. And also, there's this other issue of what we call copycat products, which are products that are offered or sold to kids in the cafeteria that meet the new standards, but they're still bearing junk food trademarks. So kids are going through the cafeteria every day, and they might still be seeing things like Domino's Pizza, Pop-Tarts, Rice Krispie Treats. And so they're getting a message that those foods are still okay to be eating all the time. And that most certainly is having an impact on healthcare, no question. Well, thank you so much, Bettina. Oh, thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. That's writer and food policy advocate Bettina Elias Siegel. Her book is Kid Food. Her blog, The Lunch Tray, is a leading source of news and commentary on school lunch. Let's travel the streets and find something delicious. LA Times food critic Bill Addison is here with a review of M. Georgina at the Row in downtown LA. It is by chef and owner Marissa Perello, who is much better known in San Francisco for her two restaurants there, Francis and Octavia. Um, but th- this may just be the place that uh, that draws people down to the row at night. I have to say that any restaurant that serves a potato that ends up in the first paragraph <laughs> of your review... <laughs> Is intriguing to me. I was thinking about that. You know, I get my share of obsessions. Lebanese canafe and Nihachi soba and Taiwanese beef noodle soup and Oaxacan clayudas. But yes, I I find myself thinking about this not-so-humble baked potato more than any other baked potato I've ever known in my life. Describe it, please. She starts by baking it in the wood-burning oven. And then there is a hearth next to the the flaming oven, and she finishes baking it by dropping it directly into the coals. So the jacket of the potato is really crackly and smoky. And then she puts a healthy dollop of sour cream next to it and puts beautiful herbs, and there's guanciale or duck cracklings, and it's just this perfect expression of what a baked potato can be. It takes that kind of American you know, thing that so many of us grew up eating or celebrating with when we were eating steaks in chop houses and turns it into something poetic and Californian. So the baked potato aside, give us two dishes that really sort of describe emblematically her cooking. Um, If you're uh, sharing a meal with someone, the Duck for two is really beautiful. It's, uh, it's again, that beautiful kind of a smoky flavor from its time on the hearth. And it's uh, sliced breast and um, whole leg. And it's dressed with charred mandarin slices right now in season and tiny mustard greens. And it's just like simple, direct, beautifully cooked food. That's what she's doing well. There's not a lot of fuss or pretension. It's just 
great food. She also does a fun version of sog, Indian sog, that I'm enjoying, where she takes cauliflower and other brassicas and she makes her own feta in place of paneer. It just comes together. It's a nice homage that, that really works on the plate. So I understand that she has started a tasting menu. Yes, and it's really nice because some tasting menus are just, you know, kind of ugworthy. It feels like it'll be three hours and you don't know whether you'll emerge starving or glutted. And this is $75 per person, and it's just a really nice amount of food. I actually, the time I had it, I was running to see a film with my date and we had like like an hour and 45 minute window and we said you know can you do it is will it be comfortable and they said no problem and it was perfect and i understand that everything is served family, family style, style which is yes. a wonderful idea yeah and a great cross section of the menu so um you'll get a pasta you'll get probably a small appetizer like the clams diavolo that i really like there it's um clams baked in a bechamel with calabrian chilies which is really nice and then pastry chef hannah ziskin is doing some really good stuff if you're a dessert fan she's one to be watching here she does a lime posset which is <laughs> i like i'm you know a former pastry chef myself i like when people bust out the like the old english sweets it's well i think everybody is loving possets these days it's a it's a thing <laughs> and uh, she also makes sourdough ice cream, which is really fun and kind of a great, you know, a nice homage to Pirello's San Francisco home base and a great way to be um, not wasting things. So they make their own bread and it's actually quite glorious. And so it's a nice through line for the meal. I've peeked in the window when I've been down at the row, and it also looks like just a really welcoming, non-intimidating room. Exactly. And I think that that's important. Um, in the row right now, it's right in off the entrance of the parking garage where you'll probably end up if you if you drive there. It's just one of those places that, you know, envelops you in the best possible way. Bill Addison is one of the food critics at the L.A. Times. We've been talking about Melissa Perello's first L.A. restaurant, M. Georgina. After the break, we close the show with an ode to Leap Year and the Weekly Market Report. Stay with us. Welcome back to Good Food on KCRW. I'm Evan Kleiman. It's February 29th. Leap year, and it feels appropriate to celebrate with frogs. So let's hop back in time for a conversation I had a few years ago with New Orleans-based chef Donald Link. My first question for him was a real doozy. If frogs live on land and in water, does that make them land food or seafood? That's a good question. I've always wondered that, too. Um, they're amphibious, so I think they'd probably fall more into the seafood category. Did you grow up trapping frogs? Uh, not trapping them. We, we go out and catch them with our hands at night. Uh, but uh, it's like with everything we do here, like you know, going fishing or hunting and frogging, it, you know, it's all a, a means to an end. You know, it's about the food. I mean, it is fun. Don't get me wrong. It's a blast. But they really are better than anything you can buy. A lot of people think they sound gross, but they, they're, I think they're pretty luxurious meat. I don't know how to put it. I mean, but they're silky and they just taste. I mean, the taste of them is out of this world. And it makes it worth it because when you go out there, it's generally hot and you're in the marsh or swamp. There's alligators floating around. The bugs are 
outrageous. I've never seen bugs till you go out with a headlight strapped to your head in the summer in a swamp. It's like the bugs are intentionally trying to get inside of you. What a nightmare. Yeah, you got to kind of go into a certain zone and not think about it too much. <laughs> and and can you hear the frogs all around you? Yes. Like it's deafening. Yeah, and some a couple of times I've been out in rain, Louisiana in particular, they call it here the frog capital of the world. Uh, in rain in particular, around you go out around 10 and you can hear them. And then by midnight, it's it's a really just an unbelievable sound. I mean, rain is is full of uh, rice fields, so they're all full of water. So there's there's frogs everywhere. You have the little frogs that make the high pitched noise, and you have the bullfrogs, which is, you know, the low grunting sound. So you you're just basically moving your head around until your headlight meets an eyeball. Yeah, you're out on the boat, and you can shine your light across the water, and you're looking for like white shiny eyes. Because um, the red ones are alligators. Oh God, that wouldn't be a good mistake. And uh, you can either hold the flashlight in your hand, or you could have uh, you know ones on your head. And you you know you wear the the water's probably no more than a foot deep, maybe two feet at most. And you just jump out of the boat, and as long as you have, you have put the flashlight right in front of them, right into their eyes, and you walk up to it. And just real quickly grab it. And I know in some places they, they, they gig them, but I've never seen anyone here in Louisiana do that. It's always caught by hand. So once you, once you have the frogs, what do you do with them, culinarily speaking? Um, well, after we clean them, you usually will take the backs and make a stock. Uh, some of the old Cajuns will make a sauce piquant with the backs. I mean, there's not a lot of meat on the backs, but they do make a good flavored sauce. Uh, generally speaking, most people fry them. You won't find frog legs at the Hollywood Farmer's Market, but you will find practically everything else. Jillian Ferguson is there now with a special edition of The Market Report. This is Jillian Ferguson with The Market Report. We are at the Hollywood Farmer's Market this week with a very special guest. Sam Sifton, food editor of the New York Times, is here with us. And Sam, you've just written a book that is all about the joys of Sunday supper. And I really wanted to talk to you at this market because for a lot of Los Angeles, this is where Sunday supper begins with a trip to the Hollywood Farmer's Market. Before we get into what's on the table, tell us a little bit about your inspiration for the book and also what Sunday supper means to you. Well, I wrote a book once about Thanksgiving called Thanksgiving, How to Cook It Well. And Thanksgiving is my favorite holiday. And I think sometimes, or I thought sometimes, what would it be like to have Thanksgiving every week? And that was kind of the inspiration, part of the inspiration. Part of the rest of the inspiration is the fact that I think people used to have Sunday suppers all the time. They don't so much any longer. And I don't think they have to happen on Sundays. They can happen any day of the week, so long as it's regular. Regular like Thanksgiving, but more often. And the reason why I think it's important to do these things is because I think it makes life better. I think it makes life better for the cooks, and I think it makes life better for the people who consume the food. Yeah, I love that you talk about it in that it's not about entertaining. It doesn't matter if you have two people at the table or if you're cooking for a group of 20. The point is just to do it. That's right. It really is not a dinner party, and you shouldn't shop for it like a dinner party. You shouldn't throw it like a dinner party. If you are going to do it on Sundays, that's pretty good. It's usually a school night or a work night for people, so it's not going to be a rager. The fact is we're just gathering together as friends and family to share the communion of the meal. 
All right, so let's make this imaginary meal. We're here at the Hollywood Farmer's Market. We've done a little loop down Ivar. What's on the dinner table tonight? Well, I'm really excited because it's February in New York City and the bounty of the Hollywood Farmer's Market is unavailable to me on the East Coast, which is not to say our meals are, are lousy this time of year. We're eating a lot of cabbages, a lot of braises, a lot of stews. But wandering down Ivar in just about a half a block, I saw enough to create a great feast. So shall we make it? Yeah, let's do it. Okay, the first thing I saw were these unbelievably beautiful leeks, about thumb width and beautiful pale white into the green. And I'll trim them up, I'll save those greens, the tops, uh, for another use. I'll use them in stock or something. But those whites, we're gonna just braise those ever, ever so slowly in a little butter, add a little white wine to them, let them get soft and cooked down, but not totally cooked down because I'm going to brown off some chicken thighs, a whole bunch of them, and put them on top of those leeks and get those into an oven and let them roast up. Whether we add a little bit of like mustard and stuff on top of the chicken, I'm going to decide in the moment. But that's going to be our kind of main course. Then to go with, like three stalls down, we ran into these beautiful baby potatoes that looked like I don't know how to play marbles. I've only seen like three marbles in my life, but they look like the big marbles that... Did anyone ever play marbles? I'm not sure, but they look like these beautiful little tiny globes. And we got a whole bunch of those. Luckily, because it's imaginary, I have duck fat in the fridge. So we're gonna have a kind of duck fat roasted potato situation. But what if we took right across Ivar, there's this like mound of Romanesco that's like, holy cow. I think I'm gonna nestle one of those, the whole thing, into the potatoes and let those just go, go, go in the oven. And there, once again, depending, I might put some breadcrumbs on to give it a little crust on the Romanesco, not so much on the potatoes. So chicken, leeks, the Romanesco and roasted baby potatoes. There were some sick looking, beautiful little lettuces. Now, I'm not a big salad guy most of the time, but I think tonight we're definitely, because we're in California, Salad seems just right. Yeah, so we're, we're gonna in salad country now. Absolutely. And we're not gonna end the meal with salad. We may start the meal with salad as the French do. Actually people eat more salad, particularly children eat more salad if you serve it first rather than last. But speaking of last, we're gonna do a dessert. I'd be tempted, there are a lot of good honeys, there's some beautiful yogurts here, there are a lot of like confections that come to mind, but mostly the citrus. I don't know if you know this, but Southern California is really pretty well known for <laughs> citrus, and it's really on display here at the Hollywood Farmer's Market today. So I want to get a bunch. saw some caracaras that looked really beautiful. I think we're going to get those oranges and put them in the fridge. I like them a little cold this time of year. Maybe that's a New York thing, but it's how we're going to do it tonight in the imaginary dinner. And then this is complicated. This is the hardest part of the whole meal. When, the, when we're done, we're going to peel those oranges, <laughs> segment them, and eat them, maybe with a little yogurt on the side. I'm hungry. I want to go do it right I now. I know. Where can we have this dinner tonight? You got to come over. I have a few questions. One with the leeks. How do you clean those leeks? This is something that always stumps me. Cleaning leeks is a huge drag most of the time, particularly when they are conventionally farmed leeks from the Central Valley. You know, time was conventional farming was organic farming. That's no longer the case. Now conventional farming is big ag farming, and there's a lot of sand and grit in there. What I like to do is cut off the root end as close to the roots as I possibly can, 
cut again a little bit higher into the green, but not into the really, really tough part. And then cut it down the center so that you have two halves. And then very, very carefully under cool water, kind of rinse the two ends where the sand can really get in there and get it out. And then rest them uh, cut side down on a paper towel, or sorry, in California, on a dish towel. <laughs> that is easily washed gently with no awful soaps, rest them on a dish towel to dry. That's the best way through. Okay, great. Next question is about the potatoes. So are we just putting these in a braising dish and tossing them with oil and salt and pepper? Originally what I was thinking is we could do them on a sheet pan with salt and pepper and maybe like there were some great herbs down here as well and I thought you know you could throw some rosemary in there if you wanted. Rosemary goes a long way but a little bit in there I think could be really good. But in this case, because we added that Romanesco later, I think I'm going to have a, more of a roasting pan, a little bit higher in case that guy tips over. <laughs> I don't want him falling too far. Well, Sam, thank you so much. The book just reminds us what we all love to do, which is love to cook. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. That was Sam Sifton, food editor of The New York Times. His new book is See You on Sunday. For The Market Report, I'm Jillian Ferguson. That is it for our show this week. If you missed any of it, listen on our website or on KCRW's mobile app. Subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or Spotify. And as always, leave us a review if you like the show. My thanks to the Good Food team, Jillian Ferguson, Laryl Garcia, Joseph Stone, and Desmond Taylor. Special thanks to Laura Kondarajan, Amy Ta, and Kenny Ng. I'm Evan Kleiman, and I'll be back next week with a new episode of Good Food.